So in this last conference, um, let me kind of tie together some of the themes that we've talked about and give a direction, kind of where do we go from here. When I was in grad school, I had this philosophy class, and the teacher, his you know, big thing was like, the two major questions in life is where did I come from and where am I going? And, uh, and that's another thing that Sister picked up on in her book, you know, where did I come from and where am I going? And, um, and so we've been focusing on this fundamental dimension of identity in Christ, our identity as beloved daughter. And, you know, and going back to the creation story, John Paul II says, you know, the answer to all of the difficult questions of our own times, you know, he says, I think that when answering the questions proposed in our own times, often so impatient, fundamental is still the answer that Christ gave to the Pharisees. Fundamental is still the answer Christ gave to the Pharisees. He says this in a Wednesday audience back in 1980. And he says, I think that Christ would give that answer all the more decidedly in as much as we seem to move farther and farther away from the biblical image of the beginning to points that are ever more distant. And he said that in 1980, when Bruce Jenner was still on my Wheaties box. Now, how much more does that statement apply today? And it certainly applies to the questions of our times with regard to marriage, with regard to gender identity, with regard to these big issues in the church that we're trying to take on. But it also applies in the simple things of our life, like how do I be a better mom? Or why is it that I just get so frustrated with my kids over simple, small things? Or why do I have a hard time connecting with my husband? Fundamental is still the answer Christ gave to the Pharisees, which is to point back to how we were created from the beginning. And when he points back to that, he implies everything that Genesis 1 and 2 speak about. That we're first created for communion with God. And then out of that communion with God comes communion with each other. In Gaudium et Spes, in the document on the church in the modern world, there's this formulation that John Paul II always quoted from. And so most people speculate that he's the reason that it's in the document because he was one of the bishops at the council when it says that man is the only creature that God created for his own sake. And he comes to know himself through the sincere gift of self. So these two dimensions were created for our own sake, and we come to know ourselves through the sincere gift of self, which implies this idea that when God created us, he created us for our own sake. What does that mean? That means he didn't create you in order for you to help other people. He doesn't love you just so that he can use you to love other people. You know, sometimes people will say to me, well, Father, it's so good. I mean, it's really amazing that God gave you this really, like, crazy family life because now you can help all these other people from crazy families. Well, I mean, that's nice and everything, but if I really think about what that implies, that implies that our Lord sort of like, hey, I'm going to put this kid through hell so I can use him to help other people. It's kind of utilitarian. No, the reality is that like our Lord created me because he loves me and that's it. Our Lord created you because he loves you, and that's it. And he created you first and foremost to experience yourself as loved by him. So much so that we can be completely satisfied in him. 
when Adam is alone in the garden, John Paul II says, like his original loneliness or his original solitude wasn't the kind of loneliness that like I feel when I get back to my rectory at night and nobody's around and I'm feeling all like, I need to talk to somebody, so I watch Netflix. Like, it's not that kind of loneliness. But rather, it's, it's being alone with God. Right? Being alone with God. Most of the time when we get in trouble with sin or with anything else, it's because we don't know how to be alone with God. Right? We don't know how to be alone with God and just be content in that space. You know, like think about when you fell in love, like in the beginnings of falling in love. And you're sitting there with your beloved. What do you want to do? I don't really care. I could just stare at you forever. <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to move because in this moment, everything's perfect. No, the opposite of that is, uh, let's do something so I don't have to deal with how I'm feeling about you right now. And so let's distract ourselves by going to a movie. And so being alone with God. And so when we focus on this like idea of identity, it means that like we're okay being alone with God. Loneliness, as we experience it as a negative thing, only happened after original sin. It only happened after that rupture with God. And then it becomes a problem of how we interpret that emotion. Now, the same feeling... Kind of that tells me like, oh, I'm alone and nobody's around and nobody cares about me and I don't know what to do. So let me find a TV show. That same emotion was experienced by Jesus. He just interpreted it as an invitation from the father to go and pray and be alone with him. The same feeling is just interpreted in a different way. His first instinct was, oh, this feeling means that I need to go to the father. Instead of this feeling means uh, I need to turn the TV on or check my social media or check my messages or I need to, you know, distract myself. And we all have to relearn how to be alone with the Lord. And when he reflects on the creation of man and woman and Adam encounters Eve, and he has that at last moment, and he cries out, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, this is something else, somebody else in the created world that reflects back to me who I am. And they experience this mutual delight. John Paul II uses that formulation, my sister, my bride. Right? My sister, my bride. It's from the Song of Songs. My sister, my bride, it implies that what I see in her first is that she's a daughter of the same father. And because she's a daughter of the same father, I can be open to communion with her. We have a shared experience because we're the only creatures in the created world that are also in communion with God. You know, on the flip side of that, the exclamation of Eve or yourselves, it could be my brother, my husband, like I can see God in this person. And because I can see God in this person, I want to open myself to them. In another lecture John Paul II gave, that which was never translated into English. It was only in Polish. It's in the Acta Apostolica Sedes, which is where the Vatican, like they catalog every single discourse the Holy Father gives. Um, but this one was never translated into any other language, and it was never published in the paper that it usually gets published in because he starts off his reflection with, talking about encountering a spiritual director about a particular relationship that he had with a woman and how his spiritual director would say to him, like, maybe God gave you this person. 
you know, maybe God gave you this person, but they never translated it because of the, like, the sort of scandal around this friendship that he had, which surely was a pure friendship. You know, but the perceptions of things, sometimes we get worried about that. And so it was never translated. But there's this beautiful reflection where he talks about how the delight, the mutual delight between the spouses, the mutual delight between our first parents, was really a mutual sharing in the delight that God had in them first. So they delight in each other. And that delight is a share in the delight that God has in them. Because God delighted in them, the Lord delighted in them. He said after creating them, this is very good. This is very good. And then they experience that with each other. This is very good. And so that bond of love within marriage, it's the result of two people being in this receptive love from God. But again, for their own sake. And then they come to know themselves through the mutual gift of self. So it's not like, um, I need to be in relationship with God so that I can evangelize my husband. It's just, I need to be in relationship with God. (laughs) And because of that, I become a witness. Because of that, I want to share that. But not I need to go pour through the catechism so that I can point out to my husband all of his faults and all the ways that he's wrong and I can convert him. You know, we have this thing that we say, which is like your job is to get your husband to heaven. And then it gets interpreted by many wives as it's my job to be the holy hour police. So I have to get my husband to heaven, and so I'm making him sign up for your retreat, Father. Or I have to get my husband to heaven, so I'm going to make him go make a holy hour. And, you know, that's not really what that means. Like, you get each other to heaven because of the fact that you're two people in relationship, and you have to learn to be sacrificial and love for each other. You grow in empathy for each other. You learn to love through each other. The other person points out to you the things about you that you don't have, and that's why you admire them. The other person reveals to you who you are in a new way. That's the real beauty of gender complementarity is that when a man and a woman are face-to-face with each other, they have to deal with themselves. Like, this person's like me, but they're not like me. So what does it mean to be me? Like, this is going to help me sharpen what it means to be me. Physiologically, but also psychologically. This was a great, like, struggle for me in my priesthood because, you know, I had grown up in this kind of world, and I, you know, I was one of those kids who had to have a girlfriend since seventh grade. Who am I going with? If I'm not going with somebody, I'm a loser. And I'm going to be the guy that girls like. That's my identity. My identity is I'm the guy that girls like and chase around and put notes in my locker. And I remember in sixth grade, I'm in sixth freaking grade, and like three girls asked me to go with them in the same day. And I remember this was my discernment. Well, they asked first, so I guess I'll say yes to them. But there was another one I really liked, but I just, like, they asked first, so I'm going to say it. It's stupid. But I was a seventh grader. But that kind of formed my identity all the way through until, like, I went to the seminary. Like, I have to have a girlfriend. And I went through this, like, weird phase of, like, Jesus, I know you want me to be a priest, but this is really lonely. So if you could just send me somebody until I go to the seminary, that would be great. Yuck. And I would excuse myself, like, well, if I tell him I'm going to be a priest, then I warned him. I spent a lot of time, I still do, like, reparatory prayer for people that I heard along the way. 
But I was finding my identity and my being with instead of my being from. And then I entered into this military career where I branched infantry, and so I was always in the world of men. And, uh, and so we didn't have women in infantry battalions, and I never had to work with them on a regular basis, and so they were always just people that I, like, I would date or whatever. And then I went to the seminary, and I'm in this world of men. And then when I got ordained, I was like, uh, I don't know how to be friends with a girl anymore. And lately, our Lord has sent me like some amazing women in my life who have become very dear friends. You know, like I, as a celibate person, I need that kind of friendship because it helps me to figure out who I am. You know, and it's one of the beautiful things our Lord did, I think, on this retreat was, you know, the retreat was getting ready to start. And I was like, I need something to play in the refectory, but I really want them to hear from Sister Miriam, who's become a very dear friend to me. And, and she is a friend that helps me to figure out who I am. You know, the most stressful talk I've given ever like I've been speaking around the country for the last probably three years I've been traveling and lately it's been all these dioceses having me come talk to their priests. Last September I spoke to our own priests. It's like super stressful. Like, am I going to get up in front of my priest and like talk like I talk when I'm going other places? I don't know about that. And so I call up sister Miriam in the morning I'm like, sister, I'm talking to our own priest. I don't really know what I'm going to do, um, you know, because I kind of, I don't have a lot of time and I'll probably like compress my witness talk kind of stuff because, well, they already kind of know me, but that's usually really important. And she just said, father, just do what you do. Like you're good when you do what you do, just do what you do. Okay. And so I like went to that pre-study day and I just did what I do. Like, my name is Father Sean Cocali, and I'm the Family Life Office Director in Lincoln, Nebraska. My dad was born in Ireland, and, you know, and I started telling my family story, and I just did what I do. And it turned out to be, like, one of the best experiences of my life. But I never would have done it if I hadn't called this woman who has good intuition and understands dynamics of relationships better than I do, and who could just, like, call me out about, you know, just do what you do. Just be who you are. And that's really important to me, because if I would have called one of my priest friends, they would have been like, no way, don't share anything, they're priests. <laughs> Lock it down. You know, so the point is that, like, we need each other. You know, we need each other. And that way, she's helping me get to heaven because she just challenges me about who I am. And she challenges me about who I am just by being who she is. You know, that's what it means that marriage helps you get the other person to heaven. And so that path to holiness, that path of conversion, right, it follows the order, right? It follows the order. Own conversion first, restoration of identity as son or daughter. Then that will just like lead into amazing spaces opening up within marriages. And I've seen couples where they thought it was irreparable what had gone on in their life and they just both worked on their own healing and all of a sudden their marriage was better. Even before they started going to marriage counseling, their marriage got better because they started working on their own healing as individuals. And then it kind of bled into them becoming better parents and being more available to their children. And so when we start there, everything follows. And, and that's why Christ came into the world. He came into the world to restore us in our core identity. But sometimes we want to run away from that. Because it's easier to throw ourselves into activity 
than to be still before our Lord and allow him to work on our hearts. John Paul II, in his document on mercy, he says, you know, that the church professes and proclaims conversion, and conversion to God is always the fruit of the discovery of his mercy. And those who come to experience him in this way, those who come to know his mercy, they can't help but to enter into the way of conversion. Right? The way of conversion as opposed to the way of pilgrimage. And, and so what he's saying is that when we actually start to experience mercy and we actually start to experience healing, what happens is we enter into this transformation that's continually going and instead of just simply like, I'm, okay, I'm walking forward, I'm walking forward, I'm walking forward, we're just being transformed in him. And we become a new creation in him. But that means that we enter into the way of conversion. And that means that, okay, like I dealt with this stuff and I got to this new place. And then, oh my gosh, there's another layer to the onion. When does it stop? Like, how many layers does my onion have? <laughs> Father, I thought I dealt with all this stuff, and then you like, guys, like, oh, now I'm a mess. But that's the way of conversion, and eventually we get to the bottom of the onion, and that's called holiness. Right? That's called holiness. Like, when you're a saint, you don't have any more layers to your onion. And it's normal. That's called normal growth and holiness. Normal growth and holiness. Like, can I just get a book and it'll tell me what to do to be holy? There's not a book for that. I have this friend in Phoenix. I just met him. He's great. He used to, like, hang out at the Catholic bookstore. And people would say, Father, I need a book for, uh, you know, my nephew who's, like, away from the church. And I need to convince him that, like, you know, he needs to have a relationship with Jesus. He's like, there's not a book for that. That happens in a relationship. There's not a book for that. It happens in relationship. So we can call people to relationship. We can be witnesses. We can walk with them. But it happens as we come to experience the love of God in a more profound way in our own hearts. And so entering into this way of conversion means that we're always going to be rooted in and working on our own identity in Christ. Now, how long should it take to really have a conversion? Like, what if I have to just totally reboot my spiritual life? And, and when I say that, like, it's, there's no shame in saying, I, I think I'm just going to go back to the beginning and get a do-over. There's no shame in that. Because sometimes, like, we don't have that foundation of who we are in Christ. And so we can just go back to the beginning and reboot and have a do-over. That's why the Pope called the year of mercy. It's like a divine do-over. Everybody can start over again. Just be a sinner who needs mercy. Just be a sinner who needs mercy. And we'll just start over from the beginning. And how long does conversion take? I mean, in the Gospels, it took about three years. Right? Three years from get away from me, I'm a sinful man, says St. Peter, to proclaiming the Gospel of Pentecost. Three years of just listening to our Lord talk about the kingdom of heaven, watching our Lord heal people, experiencing our Lord's healing, walking next to Jesus every day, and it took three years. And the church, in her wisdom, used to say it takes three years to become a Catholic. You have to have a year of pre-evangelization, a year of catechesis, and then after you're baptized, you get another year of mystagogy. It was three years. And guess how long a, like recovery from an addiction takes? Average three years. Okay, it's just part of the rhythm of our lives. Three years for the three persons of the Trinity. Like These are all like things that are tied together. 
And so there's no reason to be frustrated or anything. Like, it's just like, oh, I'm just like in need of conversion. And it takes about three years. When I came back from Rome, I had gone through this healing process and, and I was needing to consolidate it. And then Sherry Waddell's reading this, writing this book on forming intentional disciples that I read. And the Pope published Lumen Fide on faith. And the Pope keeps talking about charisma. And so I was just like, okay, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to pray like a pagan for three years. What I mean by that is my prayer just became very simple and focused on like our Lord loves me in the midst of like all of this junk. Even when I'm still struggling with some things, even when I'm still struggling with some sinful things, our Lord still loves me. He wants all of my heart, but he's very patient with me. And I just started inviting him into like all the different moments of my day and practicing the presence of God and just saying, Jesus, you're welcome to do whatever I was doing at the time. And that's kind of where things started. I used to have like a pretty rigorous spiritual life. And then I just started saying, you know, I'm just going to like work on practicing the presence of God and letting him develop a friendship with me. And on a really practical level, like how that manifested itself, I mean, there was when I was first back and I was starting to do these things, I'm trying to start the divorce ministry group and I'm starting to give some conferences on pornography for parents that everybody thought I was just a crazy person for doing. And I'm also working on some other family life initiatives and, um, and I was really tired at the end of the day. And so I was like going through my day and I get back at 10 PM and I'm just really tired and so I go in my room and kind of shut the door and just hope nobody would talk to me and like that nobody in the rectory would even know I was there. And I kind of let my room get into shambles. It was like a mess. So I just leave my door shut all the time and I wouldn't let the cleaning lady in. And I would pretend like everybody thought my room was neat, but it was really messy. And I realized I was just isolating in my room. And that was like Father Sean time. So like, shoo, close the door. Nothing else exists, not even Jesus, and I'm watching Netflix. And I'd watch Netflix for like, you know, sometimes like one show turns into like three shows, right? We're all incontinent when it comes to Netflix watching. Right? Some of you might be really virtuous and you just watch one episode and go to bed and you're like, wow, that was really great and I don't need to see how it starts in the next 10 seconds. But for me, I was like, I'm just going to watch the beginning of the next show, right? And then 45 minutes later, it's like 10 seconds till the next show. And, uh, and so I realized, like, I was, like, just closing myself off in that time. And, and, and then I just felt our Lord asking me for my whole day. Like, Jesus was asking me for my whole day. And so I started to just go home, go to my room, shut the door, say, Jesus, you're welcome into my room with me right now. And we're going to watch Netflix. <laughs> right? Because you can watch Netflix with Jesus because he's always present. He watches Netflix with you anyways because he's always present. You might as well just invite him into whatever you're doing at the time. And then eventually what happens is I fall more in love with Jesus than Netflix and You know, I gave up TV. For, I haven't watched TV in like 10 days, so everybody knows. I'm not still a TV addict. Um, but I actually gave it up before Ash Wednesday because, like, I just feel like I don't need it anymore. Because our Lord has continued to call me to something more. And some of you would share, like, well, I feel like our Lord's calling me, but I'm just, like, really freaking out about it right now. I feel like our Lord's like penetrating the walls of my heart, but I'm kind of freaking out about that right now. I'm not really sure about that right now. And that's a normal phase to be in. Right? Where do we go when we're in that phase? We just stay in the tension and just let our Lord keep like chipping away at the door and making himself safe. I would go to spiritual direction all the time and just say, you know, I feel like our Lord's calling me to deeper intimacy, but I just don't want to do it because if I do it, he's going to ask me to do even more stuff and I can't handle it. Okay, that's a normal temptation. But I was in the spiritual direction recently and I was having this conversation with my director and he goes, well, how do you feel about our Lord calling you to that? And I just said, yeah, 
actually, it's okay. Because I know who he is. And he's safe, and he's gentle, and he's kind. And he's going to take care of me. What God wills, God enables. And so that conversion is a lifelong process, and some things might have come up during these days, and they're just things that our Lord wants to heal. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to heal it. You know, one of the things I love about Sister Miriam, you know, which was also kind of my way of like gender complementarity on this retreat, like uh, you can hear from me and you can hear from this religious sister. But one of the things I love about her is we, um, we were speaking together in Orlando and I was calling to talk to her. And I know she's really involved with the John Paul II Healing Institute in Florida. And, uh, and so I kind of thought that she was going to be one of those people that's like, all you need to do is spiritual healing, da, da, da. And she was talking to me and she's like, dude, I'm like, go big or go home. I do everything. 12 step groups, EMDR. Wait, there's EMDR therapy. I'm doing EMDR therapy. I'm just going to do everything and spiritual healing in order to like be in relationship with our Lord. She's so zealous about being in relationship with our Lord. She's willing to do all this stuff, like whatever it takes. I call that being stubborn about having joy. Right? Being stubborn about having joy means I'm just going to do whatever it takes. Because our temptation, what the evil one wants to do, is the evil one wants to come to you and say, yeah, you have this stuff, but you don't really need to do everything. You can just read a book. Here, read this book. And everything will be better. Or just do the minimum. Just like share enough of your life in order to get the information that you need in order to fix yourself. We're not created to fix ourselves. We're not created to like be self-sufficient, autonomous people. We're created to be in communion. And so he wants to deter us from doing everything. Healing interventions, whether they do, they help to compress the time it takes to discover who we are. They compress the time it takes to discover who we are. And I have people criticize me sometimes because I'm doing this anti-pornography work and and, uh, and I'm promoting, like, 12-step groups, and I'm promoting, you know, healing ministries and counseling. And I'm like, if you're not, you need to go to counseling group and a spiritual director minimum. And people will be kind of critical of that. And this guy came up to me at a conference, and he was like, oh, Father, I used to have that problem. Oh, you used to? Oh, great. I'm like, how did you get through it? Just confession. Lots of confession. Like, 40 years of confessions. Okay, we can compress that timeline. We can compress that timeline. But it's the same thing for anything that we need healing for. Confession is the sacrament of healing. But then there's also these other things that help us just to heal in a human way. So that the doors open for the Holy Spirit to come in and transform our hearts. And then as it does, everything else in our life bears more fruit. My parishioners say to me, I like the new Father Kokali. Or kids say to their dads, I like the new dad. Or someday your kids, your grandkids say to you, I like the new mom. I like the new grandma. And then you see in them, like you see the image of God working because they start to receive God's love through your love. And that's your vocation, to be an image of Christ's love in the lives of your children. And you learn to be merciful mothers because you've received mercy. Like You learn to be the seat of mercy, affirmation, presence, security, because you've learned that from our Lord and it's written into your biology. And you're the first ones to teach your children what it means to entrust themselves to another person 
because ever since, like from the moment of conception, they've been entrusting themselves to you. It's an amazing invitation from our Lord to share in his life. You know, to share in his love. And then we see the witness of that bear fruit. So where to go from here? Um, one of the exercises that I always do on retreats, and, and you can spend some time on this before Mass, is that I always like, do renewal of baptismal promises at the end of retreats. And, and so I wanted to do that again today and just like to just lead you in renouncing and affirming what you believe in. And the reason for that is that, you know, every year at Easter, we renew our baptismal promises, which implies that our conversion's never done, right? That's why we do it every year at Easter. It's not just like a nice thing like, oh, well, we just welcome people into the church, so let's all like renew that because it'll be fun to renew that. It's actually a moment of change, you know, it's to continually renew the promises that we made at our baptism and to continually check in about where am I at in my own conversion. That's what Lent and Easter are. Lent and Easter are a time to step back and say, where am I at in my own conversion? And so we prepare for 40 days to renew what happened when we were baptized, which is that we became sons and daughters of God. And so in that renewal, we do the vows again. Right? Those vows were made by many of our parents if we were baptized as infants, and then we've, we've answered them again and again and again every year at Easter. But oftentimes we've done that just sort of empty-minded. You know, it's like, okay, instead of the creed, we're going to renew baptismal promises. Great, it's way shorter. And we kind of stand up, and the priest says, do you renounce Satan? I do, and all his works, I do, and all his empty show, I do. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? I do. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church? Da, da, da. I do. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Then we sit down, and when they go on with the Mass, and like we don't think about what we just did. And so when we think about baptismal promises from the point of view of somebody who's baptized as an adult, it's a way different experience because like, when they're asked the question, do you renounce Satan, they probably are reflecting on their life with Satan. Right? They've lived a life with Satan. They have all these sins in their lives that they've been committing over and over and over again. And so do you renounce Satan means, do you renounce all the sins that you've committed in your life? And they have that in their mind, like they know the impact of that and what they've done. And they say, I do. I'm saying no to that. Then when they ask the question, do you renounce all his works? That implies that there are the works of Satan that have affected our lives. Or those sins committed against us that have had a negative effect in our lives. And that we kind of carry the spiritual woundedness of. And so they're thinking about all the sins committed against them, all the resentments that they have in their hearts, all the, the kind of, you know, I wish my life was different. If only that hadn't happened, then my life would be different. They're thinking about all of that, and they say, I do. I want to say no to that. And all his empty promises, or all his empty show implies like all the lies that we start to believe about ourselves because of sin. I'm not good enough. People really knew me. They reject me. No one, not even God, can meet my needs. I'm not supposed to be happy. My happiness is based on my performance or my being loved is based on my performance. If I'm perfect, God will love me. All those kind of lies. Do you renounce all of that? I do. So I've now cleared out all the junk and said, I don't want that anymore. And in the ancient church, they would face west. 
in the baptismal pool, they'd face west, and they'd be asked those questions. And so they'd say, I renounce all of that junk. And then they would turn and face east and be asked, do you believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Because of the Lord comes from the east. So there's this actual turning around of their body that reminded them of the turning around in their heart. And then they would affirm their faith in our Lord. Because we have to say no to things so that we can say yes to things. We have to say no in order to say yes. So in order to place our faith in our Lord, we have to say no to all the things that get in the way of placing our faith in our Lord. And so an exercise to do, and you can like do it today, but kind of continue to do it during Lent, and I do this every year at Lent myself, is I take a piece of paper and I make three columns. And in the first column, I write down all the sin that I'm struggling with in my life right now over the past year. Because that's the content for the question, do you renounce Satan? Because I want to know what I'm renouncing. So, like, I struggle a little bit with gossip, um, you know, whatever it is, like, whatever those sins are. In the second column, I write down all the sins committed against me, things I have resentments about. You know, my friend committed detracted detraction against me, like somebody committed calumny against me. The bishop just doesn't understand me. Those are all things that I struggle with from time to time. So all the sins committed against me, things I have resentments about, unforgivenesses. And I want to get rid of that. I want to clear that out of my life. And then in the third column, I'm going to write down all the lies that I tend to carry. I'm not good enough. I'm wasting my time. It's more important that I care for others than be cared for. I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need people. I can have a conversion on my own. Whatever those things might be. And then what I do is on the Easter vigil, I just kind of like put those in a pocket in my shirt next to my heart. And I'm like, okay, this is my intention when we get to the renewal of baptismal promises. Because it's going to go really fast. It's not like we say, examine your conscience, and then we're going to do this renunciation. No, but today, either before or within the context of Mass, like we'll go ahead and do that. Just to kind of clear out whatever has come up during the retreat. So where do we go from here? You know, all of us have our own story, and our Lord is working in your story, and he's been working in your story this weekend. Some of us, like, we're... You know, in that period of growing in clarity and virtue and we know who we are and we, we maybe have just been affirmed in that during these days. Maybe there were some things that we learned that will help us to spread that gospel message to others. Maybe there are some things we learned that will help us to reach out to others who are maybe lost or feeling alone or feeling rejected. Others, they find themselves in that kind of period of distortion on that salvation history timeline. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm just really stuck right now. You know, I I think there's something true here, but I don't really know how it's going to like work itself out going forward. And that's okay to be there. Some of us thought we were in the clarity, but we're really in the distortion. You know, like I, I thought I was good father. And then you made me and like, now I'm over here. And that's okay, too. It's actually really exciting because that means, like, whoa, there's, like, a lot more. No, there's a lot more. There's, like, more joy to be had. 
you know, I have some things that have come up either through me or through sister and, and you feel like, uh, maybe I could benefit from going to counseling. Like just like, pick up the phone and go to counseling. If you don't know who to go to, call me and I'll tell you, like, I'll give you some names. Sometimes we just have to go to like three or four sessions of things that clear something out. Like sometimes it's just something, you know, small. Sometimes it takes more, but, but like be stubborn about having joy and go big or go home. Like just like, okay, I'm going to use the tools that are available to me. Spiritual healing, interior healing. No, we don't do a lot of that within the context of the retreat, but next Saturday, um, there is a healing conference going on at the Newman Center with Mary Healy. Mary is a brilliant woman. She's a teacher at the seminary in, in Detroit. And, uh, and she's got this whole perspective on you know, evangelization through healing because that's the way it was done in Scripture. And, uh, and so she's giving a conference during the day, and there's this big prayer service, healing prayer service in the evening. And so, like, I would really recommend that as a follow-up, you know, especially if there's still some kind of, you know, junk in the way. And, uh, like, I want to be able to do something with this now. And I tried to do it, but I feel like there's something more. Um, That's a great follow-up. And, like, God's providence has it that it's next weekend on Saturday at the Newman Center. And so you can find out more about that online, I think. Don't know where it's advertised in every place, but I've reshared it on my personal Facebook post page today, so you can find that advertisement. You know, in our diocese, there's this amazing movement going on of this kind of healing ministry movement, and it's really fascinating to watch it happening. And, you know, the Unbound Prayer Ministry is, like, probably the fastest-growing apostolate in the Diocese of Lincoln right now. Which means there's a lot of people who have always been faithful, but there's some interior conversion that hasn't happened. They're finding that in that ministry. We've got, like, last two years ago, the John Paul II Healing Center in Tallahassee, and they run these healing retreats, and lots of people from the diocese have flown down there and had really good experiences there. Um, but they came and gave a priest study day, and then we've had this like steady flow of priests who keep going down there for their own healing. And then they're coming back, and they're like doing all this stuff, like Father Craig Doty putting on these like healing seminars. Before that, he was just like the tribunal priest. Uh, I just like work in the tribunal. It's super depressing. And now he's like doing these healing seminars and he's on fire. And it's amazing to see that happening. It's amazing. Like as he's encountered our Lord, how he's just like super passionate about bringing that to others. It's how the church works. It's how the church works. And it's really exciting to see, like, what's, what's going to happen next? You know, like, what's going to happen next? And so our Lord's doing all those things. No, our Lord's doing all those things. No, at the same time as I was starting my, like, ministry that's really specific to people with sexual brokenness, um, JP2 Center for Healing is kind of popping up and speaking the same language as I do. The Institute for Priestly Formation is popping up. They speak the same language that I do. Mary's writing this book on healing and evangelization that kind of speaks the same language. Like, you just find people and everybody's speaking the same language, but it came through a different conduit, which means, like, it's all coming from the Holy Spirit. You know, it's all coming from the Holy Spirit. Because our Lord wants to renew the church, and this is a vehicle that he's using in our time. You know, in our time, and it's exciting. You know, it's exciting. It's like scary and exciting at the same time. And so I just encourage you, you know, to be stubborn about your own conversion. To be stubborn about your own conversion. Like, Father, I just don't feel... Well, like, let's be stubborn about your conversion and think of, like, all the things we can do to, like, clear out the space and, like, make room for our Lord to enter in.
because he does want to heal everybody. You know, he does want to heal everybody. It's why he came into the world the first time, and it's why he continues to be here. You know, and then you will become instruments of healing and evangelization and conversion in the lives of your children and the lives of your grandchildren. And we truly become a light that shines in the darkness of our culture. And let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for all of the gifts that you have given us. We ask you once again to send your Holy Spirit into our hearts upon these, your beloved daughters. Continue to move in them, to move their hearts into the way of conversion, the way of mercy, that they may be continually transformed in your love. that they may truly know the joy of belonging to you. Enlighten in them the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that they may hear your voice and respond to it. That they may recognize the instruments and the tools that you place before them for the purpose of bringing them into union with you. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And uh, you can finish Sister Miriam's book on your own. So, everybody's been asking. It's called Loved As I Am. That's the name of that book. Okay? Loved As I Am.